We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back listeners and first-time listeners, those who are joining us for the very first time. Welcome to this podcast channel. As we are going through Colossians today. We're going to start up on that one. It is actually kind of hard to believe that we've already gone through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and now hitting Colossians. Um, it has been enriching. It has been uh, just kind of edifying for me to be able to go, go through a lot of these things because I learn a lot of times just as much as what you guys do as we go through it, whether it's confirmation of things that I've already known that God's already revealed or whatever it might be. Um, Colossians is going to be one of those books that we're going to go through that is, it is rich. I mean, it is just um, chock full of things that are just rich. It's not just a simple understanding uh, of a book. It has just got some meat to it. It's got richness to it. There is so much, um, even just in this very first chapter, that we're going to hit. And I'm hoping that you guys are going to be edified and blessed through this. You might be convicted by it as, um, you know, a lot of you guys, I don't know where you're from, but you might hear sermons. You know, in this area, we oftentimes hear sermons that I would oftentimes call fluff. Um, it's not untrue all the time, necessarily, but it's the fluff of things. Um, it could be, you know, some of it could be the milk of the word, or it could be just the feel-good stuff. Like, it's a big thing here, and I think it is all across the world, where you hear those messages where it's like, God just wants to bless you, God just loves you, God just, you know, He has mercy and He has steadfast you know, um, love towards you, just whatever, all those feel-good things of God wants what's best for you, wants you to be happy. And while some of it's not necessarily untrue, some of it might be, but some of it's not necessarily untrue, it's only a one-sided aspect to what the word of truth is. And so um, because that is the predominantly, overwhelmingly, what most people hear today, this podcast channel is not geared towards fluff. It's not geared all, you know, to be able to um, constantly just fill you up with all the good things of the gospel, um, you know, quote unquote good. I, I want to talk about the things that other people don't talk about very much. I want to hit and talk about things that are probably going to be convicting, that are going to be hard truths. Uh, I'm going to show sides of who God is that isn't just the, uh, you know, he's your homeboy as the slogan once went, or he's just a friend, or he's just Abba Father. Um, he is God. He is God Almighty. And yes, if you're in Christ, you have a right that nobody else does to call him Abba Father. I don't care if you're a Jew, I don't care what your lineage is, you do not have a right to call God Abba Father unless you are in Christ and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Go read Romans 8 for that one. Um, the point is, but that's not the only part of who he is. Yes, he is a father, 
But as it says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. We have to understand that He is God. He is our master. He is our general. There's a reason why Paul starts every letter that he writes with, I, Paul, an apostle um, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy, our brother. Um, over half of them, he even st- says that he is a slave. You know, it's interesting. We just got done listening to a sermon. and It was a great sermon. Uh, I, I was encouraged by it. I think there was, you know, some things that maybe were had some misconceptions towards. But for the most part, I thought it was a really good sermon. Um, and one of the things he talked about was that um, God is all the Father. Right, But he is not our commander. And I take issue with that because he absolutely is. You know, it focused a lot on, his, on the sonship that we have in Christ. And I'm not going to get too much into this because I really want to get into, into Colossians. But it talks a lot about the sonship that we have in Christ. And while there's a lot of truth to that, um, Paul addresses almost half of his letters with, I, Paul, a slave. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's indicative to me because he doesn't say, I, Paul, a son of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, I'm just a son of the Father. He says, I am a slave to the Father. I exist for the purpose of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 8 6 talks about. And so I want us to understand that not only is he Abba Father and that term of endearment and that term of love, but he is absolutely our general, our commander. And he has given us a series of rules and guidelines that we need to follow. And if we don't follow those, those there will be discipline. So we need to um, honor him and serve him with fear and trembling, not just love and adoration. You don't want one or the other. You want a healthy balance of both. And so, anyways, with that kind of out of the way, I want us to, to get into Colossians chapter 1. Hang with me in this. There is a ton of content. You do not want to miss all the way to the end. I believe it's 28 verses, 29 verses. You don't want to miss it, okay? There's things we're going to hit all the way through. Stay with me on this one. If you're like, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that, chances are as we get through this into 29 verses, there's going to be something like, oh, well, I I didn't see that or I didn't know that. Um, Stay with me on this. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, understanding that, that this was possibly in the early 50s, but more than likely this is roughly written um, late 50s, even maybe early 60s, um, in which Paul was writing this letter. So uh, a little bit before Philippians was written, so there's still some things that were going on that Paul was um, you know, going through or whatnot. But this Colossians was a little bit predating Philippians. All right, um, A couple of things I want you to notice. One, who is the directive to this? It's to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Now, it's important that we establish that because every time that you see a you in Scripture that's being written for the, the you know, purpose of this letter, it's going to be with the directive of those who are saints and are faithful brothers in Christ because that's who he's writing it to. That's very important to understand. Because we oftentimes like to twist things and we miss the context and we miss the directive of what Paul's writing and who he's writing to. Thus, we can then interpret things how we want it to. That'll make sense in a little bit as we get into verses 21 through 23. Um, Okay, so going on. 
He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, this is just a fascinating introduction because Paul is writing with affection towards this church. This church in Colossae, these faithful brothers, the saints who are in Christ. He says, guys, I every time I remember you in my prayers, as we're going to get to even in verse 9. Every time I remember you in my prayers, when I even just think about you, I'm filled with thankfulness. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with affection towards you because I see your faith in Christ being manifest in your daily lives. And I see the love that God's love is in you towards all the saints. Now, I want to point something out real quick. He doesn't say it towards all the world. He says towards all the saints. Now, you might not know this, but the reality is, is that in Galatians 6, I think it's in verse 9, maybe in 10, he says, so as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, but especially the household of faith. Now, this is something that I think a lot of people get confused because they think it's almost a, an equal amount of love and affection that we should have for the world and for the church. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that you should have a deeper affection for the family of God. You should have a greater love for the family of God than you do even for the world. This doesn't mean that you don't love the world. It just simply means that the love that you have should be prioritized towards the saints. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now that word for the brothers is very specific. It's not referencing the world. It's referencing the family of God, the Adelphos. So, pointing that out to you because I think a lot of people have this misconceived notion in which we are to love the world equal to, and sometimes I would say in some degrees, less than the church. And that's just not the case. In fact, it should be greater than, never even equal to, but greater than we have a love for the world. It's the same love, but we prioritize the family of God more than we even do the world. Now that flies in the face of a lot of people's ideologies of their doctrine, of their theology, of who God is and what our commission is in this life. And unfortunately, they're wrong. John 17, 20-26 says that the gospel will have power. People will know that God loves them and that Christ was sent for them by how we seek to be perfectly one with one another as the church. You can't let the world get in the way of your relationship with the church. You don't prioritize the world more than you prioritize the church. Alright, so with that said, you see that their faith in Christ is evident, the love that they have for all the saints. And he says, and here's the reason that they have it. Because they have a hope laid up for them in heaven. Not on earth, but in heaven. They're looking to something higher. They're looking to something distant. They're looking to something that's coming in the future. That they're saying, that's my hope. And as Romans 8 says, hope that is seen is not hope. It's in what is unseen. They have this faith in knowing that Christ is my hope of glory. I will one day be with God in heaven in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, for all of eternity because of Christ and my position in him. And because of that, my treasure being in heaven, being in Christ, because of that, I live this life in such a manner that it reflects the glory of Christ. 
Because what we love most is what we're going to focus on most. And it's going to be even heaven or it's going to be earth. You can't serve both the God of this world and the God of heaven. If your treasure truly is the God of heaven, then your mindset will constantly be on the things of Christ. You'll walk out that faith that he tells us to as the righteous shall live by faith in Romans 4. You'll live that love, that incorruptible love of God in truth. You'll live that out for all the saints and all of humanity. You'll live it out. And you'll do it in the reflection of Christ and the image of Christ because your treasure is Christ. If your treasure is truly the things of this world, as Luke 12, 34 says, that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, then you probably won't. You'll do it when it's convenient. You'll do it when it doesn't cost you. So where your treasure is, it really is where your heart is going to be. If your treasure is on the things of this earth, even the good things, your family, your job, money, which I wouldn't necessarily classify as good, but it could be. Even if it's on the good things of this life and you're taking pleasure in this, then let me just tell you, First Timothy or Second Timothy 2.4 says, then you're living more like a civilian than a soldier. We have a mission and we are to live as soldiers in this life. Not for the conveniences and the luxuries that this world can afford us. It's for Christ. And too many people get this confused. They take those pleasures and joys and the greatest pleasures and joys they have in this life are things of this life. And it's not Christ. And they're deceived. Because we should be living as soldiers. And apparently, this church in Colossae, they are. Their faith is coming with the reckless abandon of themselves for the glory of God. Their love is at the sacrifice of themselves for the glory of God. And it is in truth that they're living. And Paul says, and because I see this, I'm so thankful for you. You make my job as an apostle, as, as, a, as a spiritual father in your life, you make it easy. Because you're doing it. You're living it. And he says, I thank um, God always for you when we pray for you. And he goes, of, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So let me just tell you, there is no ounce of falsity or lies or manipulated um, heresies in any part of what the gospel is because it is a word of truth. I say this because a lot of people are like, oh, well, I preach the gospel and he preaches the gospel because we're just preaching Christ and him crucified. And so therefore, we're both preaching the gospel even though our messages are different. Even though I might be a health, wealth, prosperity guy, well, that guy over there is more of like a poverty gospel, if you will, both labels that I've heard. I might be Calvinistic and he's Arminianist. Both labels that I've heard that men like to put on things. The reality is, is the gospel is going to be rooted in truth and truth is absolute, not relative. And that is why God says we need to be eager to maintain unity of the Spirit. And guess what? The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. It's not relative. It's not open for interpretation. It is truth. And it's absolute. And he says, Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Notice there's that again. Not just understand the grace of God according to what you think it is. The grace of God in truth. First Peter 5.12 talks about it. Where Peter at the end of his letter that he's writing to them. He says here. By Salvanus, a faithful brother as a regard him. Which is actually Silas. Uh, the Greek name for it. Um, that might make sense if you know who Silas is. Um, a faithful brother as I regard him. I've written briefly to you. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. 
Stand for a minute. If there's one thing that Satan is going to try to do, it's going to be to distort grace. Because grace is power. Grace is the ability of heaven to plant the heavenly stuff inside of a human vessel and live out the purposes of God through that vessel. That's grace. That's why it says in Titus 2 that grace has appeared training us to renounce ungodly passions. To live righteous and holy lives. What is it that's training us? It's grace. It's power. And you look at it, even the sense of, um, oh, where was it? My mind was just going there until I got on um, to live that out. And, oh, in Jude, Jude 1.3, talks about it. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered for the saints. Jude is writing, he says, look guys, I wanted to just write to you about our common salvation. I wanted to just be thankful and, and praise God with you and worship God and praise God through the text. But I find it more necessary to write to you to contend or to wage war against people who are trying to twist the faith. And not just the faith, listen to what he goes on to say. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says, you got to wage war against people who pervert what the faith is, what the gospel is, and what grace is. There's people out there who only think that grace is just unmerited favor. They're perverting it because they're missing what grace truly is. Is there a shade of it that's unmerited? Absolutely. But is there a shade of it that's merited? Absolutely. You've got to understand what grace really is. So I hope you're not part of the masses that are teaching grace as simply just unmerited favor. Because for one, you'll find the definition of favor under grace, the Greek word charis, you'll find favor, but you won't find the word unmerited in its definition. You'll find that there's times in which we understand the grace of God is um, given to us freely. It's, it's unmerited in the sense that it has been freely offered to us, but to receive it and reckon it to your account, it's going to cost you. That's why 1 Peter 5, 5 and going into 6, he says, humble yourselves therefore in the mighty hand of God and right before it, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you actually have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He's not doing it for you. You have to choose to humble yourself, to bow the knee to him, to say your ways, not my ways, your will, not my will. And he says, that's the person that I'm going to give grace to. So in that sense, you absolutely have to earn it. It is freely offered to you, but for you to reckon it to your account, to actually have the stuff of heaven planted in your soul, you have to do something. So if you don't understand grace and what it truly is, then you are misrepresenting it and you're part of the masses that Paul or that Jude is stating we must contend against. Now, some are deceived and some are deceivers. We've got to be able to know the difference. And so we have to be patient with some and we've got to be firm with others. And hopefully you're the part who's actually moldable to truth, who's willing to receive what it states. This is why in Hebrews 12, verse 14, he says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one among you fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and by it many become defiled. 
Our job is to make sure that people receive grace in truth, not in lies. So it goes on, he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard from Epaphras, that the, the one who just told them of the faith and the love that these, this church in Colossae was having towards one another, he says, So from that day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for from the day we heard of what God was doing in his church in Colossae. That you guys were relying, because it wasn't their love, guys. Understand this. It wasn't even their faith. It was God's faith planted in them. It was God's love planted in them. All they were was that soil that God planted the seed in and they are allowing it to grow. They're allowing it to have growth in their life and it's abounding and it's producing fruit because the soil that he planted the seed of his faith and his love in is growing. And he says, because we've heard of this, we haven't ceased to pray for you. Asking that in conjunction with your love and faith, that you may be filled with with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, um, understanding this, James one twenty seven says this is pure and undefiled religion. We've heard the, the verse before to um, take care of widows and orphans in their affliction. But then this part oftentimes gets missed. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's hagios. The, the Greek word is hagios. It basically means to be holy. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, you can go look these up. In 1 Thessalonians 4.3, in fact, you could even read all the way through 8. Um, it says, this is the will of God. Your sanctification or your holiness. See, God wants you to be sanctified into the perfect image of Jesus Christ. That's his ultimate goal in your life. That's what he's striving for. That's what he's seeking to do. And sanctification is the means in which it gets you to look to be holy as he is holy. And in verse 8 he says, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. And so I want you to understand, if you're disregarding that you need to be sanctified into the perfect image of Jesus Christ, that you need to actually do something to humble yourself because you know what it is that's going to do the sanctifying work in you, that's training you, as I already said in Titus 2, it's grace. Grace is God's means to make you look like His Son. So you've got to exercise humility in this life and you've got to walk in faith because what it is, what does it say? We are saved by grace through faith. So if you're not exercising faith, if you're just sitting on your laurels, if you're just sitting and saying, you know what, I got this talent from God, and I'm just going to bury it. And I'm just going to kind of live my life, do my thing, just have that seed planted in me, and I'm not going to do anything with it. God says, that doesn't end too well for you in Matthew 25. That, that, that doesn't go too well for the person who does that. But the person who's going to take that seed and they're actually going to invest it, they're going to to, to, uh, allow it to be planted and then fertilize it and grow it. They're not going to let rocks in that soil. They're not going to let thorns grow up with it. That person is going to ultimately end up producing the fruit of looking like Christ. 
You might not even think that's possible. So maybe you're part of the whole, you know, mass exodus from truth today that's going out there saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, that's who you were. That's not who you are. You have been empowered. If you are truly in Christ, you have been empowered with the Almighty living inside of you to achieve that which is possible now through Christ and only through Him. What was formerly impossible in your flesh has now become possible in the Spirit. And so he says, I've prayed for you, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. As 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, James 1.28 says, In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, I'd encourage you to go look at Job 28.28 28 and go look at Psalm 111 verse 10 because it talks about that there's a distinction between wisdom and understanding. Essentially, wisdom comes through the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And those who practice it, have understanding. So essentially it's the one who's applying the wisdom they get from fearing God. If you don't fear God, I once had somebody tell me that we don't we aren't supposed to fear God. Immediately I shut off from listening to that person because I know that that is not wisdom from above because the very beginning of wisdom before you can scratch the surface of wisdom you must have the understanding that we are to fear God. And it's not a fear of Him of just a reverence. The Greek word that's used for fearing God is phobios. Now we get the English word phobia from that word. Now listen very carefully to what I'm stating. Because phobios is a Greek word that, sim- that simply means that you are in dread. You are terrified. And it says that's the beginning of wisdom when you understand who God really is. If you don't think we need to fear God and you think he's just Abba Father, that we just need to maybe even reverence him, but that's the limit of it, then I'm not going to listen to a thing you have to say because you haven't even scratched the surface of wisdom. And so he says, I want you to be filled with this faith and this love so that you don't actually go off in a direction where it becomes more humanitarian than it becomes actually God-oriented. I want that love to be coupled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here it is. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says it's great that you're exercising faith and that you're exercising love. But if that love and faith is not in accordance with truth, then you will not walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says, it's great that you're exercising faith and love, but as of yet, you are not fully walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord. Did you catch that? He says, I am praying for you because I've heard of your faith and your love. You're doing good. But I've heard of that and I want you to do better. So I'm praying for you that you would be filled with all the knowledge of His will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as... To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He says, you're, you're not who you ought to be yet. You're, you're progressing, you're being sanctified, you're doing good as a child. Man, what parent doesn't want their child to walk in a faith and a love? They want them to love their siblings. They want them to do what they're asked to do. They want them to honor, even if it doesn't make sense. Even if they don't understand why they need to brush their teeth every day. We do. We understand we're protecting them from things that can actually harm them later on in life if they choose to just be negligent in doing some simple things. But in faith, they don't understand the outcome. They say, okay, Dad, I'll just brush my teeth because I trust you. 
Okay, Dad, I, I, I'm, I'm letting this affection for my siblings govern me and rule me, and I'm actually loving them. But as a parent, we know there's way more to life later on that you're going to have to learn other than just brushing your teeth and loving your siblings. That's a great start, but there's more. And that's what Paul's stating here is he says, you're doing good. I'm thankful for you, but let's do better because there's another level. There's another step. And he says, and that step comes when you understand truth and spiritual wisdom and you apply it. He says, that's what he's praying for him. And he says, may you be strengthened with all power. Now that Greek word is dunamis and it means miraculous power. It's just a basic definition of it. There's other aspects of it, but the basic definition is that which is supernatural, that which is miraculous. It's the miraculous power, not to just perform miracles, although I believe that that's part of it, but it's the miraculous supernatural work of God to do something in you that in your flesh you cannot do of yourself. To live morally a righteous life. To grow into perfection as Christ. You might not think that's attainable. And I, I get that. A lot of people don't. But that's not what the word teaches. I would encourage you to go through the word with the lens of understanding that God's right. And any preconceived notion that you have would be wrong. And I guarantee you. If you do that, the spirit will lead you into all truth to understand that it is possible to live like Christ. He goes on and he says, With all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, meaning you are no longer under its rule. Notice he doesn't say he will deliver us from that or he has yet to deliver us from that. He has. Those who are in Christ, he has delivered from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have access to grace. We have access to redemption. We have access to the forgiveness of our sins. We have access to power. And it's not something we're waiting for. It's something we have now. By grace, through faith, to the humble. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. I don't have a long time to get into that. You can go into Romans 8.28 where it talks about that concept, or 8.29, I'm sorry, where it talks about the concept of Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That means that he was born. Okay? The, oh man, this could get really hairy and sticky. Re- reality is, before all things, Christ was. He was with God, exist in the beginning, with God, three in one, okay? But then came a time at the, at the fullness of time when God appointed it and said, now's the time. Christ was then born. And he became then the firstborn of what was going to be called the new covenant. He was the firstborn among many brothers. So that in him, all things would be preeminent. He would hold first place. That's going to make sense in a second. So he was, and he is, He will always be, but he was the firstborn. And it says he is the image of the invisible God. So if you want to see God, look at Christ of how he lived. He had the character of God. He he had the instilled principles of God in him. You want to know what what it looked like, what God would look like, look at Christ. Because he was the exact replica of God in the flesh. 
It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Man, I don't have a lot of time to get into all this stuff. Just keep studying. Just keep looking. Um, and, and just know that, as it's about to say, in Christ... All things hold together. That's the main thing I want you to take from this. Because all this other stuff, it's like, okay, we could go, we could go back in Genesis and we could go in John and we can look at some of these things. But the reality is all this stuff is summed up in one thing. That Christ needs to hold first place in your life. And that in him all things hold together. All the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Christ. You want a promise of God fulfilled in your life? You better make sure you're in Christ. You want even the promise of salvation to be fulfilled in your life in the end. When you stand before him, you better make sure that you are in Christ. Because all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. And so going on, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these first few verses. It says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, as Ephesians 1 and 2 talk about. He is the beginning, the firstborn, there's that word again, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's a Greek word, proteio, it means to hold first place. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now this is an amazing concept I don't want you to miss. A lot of people stop it right there and say, Christ, the fullness of God was in him. And they stop the, 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 the trickle-down effect from there. But that's not what the Word teaches. I want you to listen. We went through Ephesians not too long ago. And in Ephesians 3, towards the end, he says a similar thing that, to the church in Ephesus. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God. I want you to be filled with the knowing the, what the love of God is that surpasses all understanding. And check this out. In verse 19 of chapter 3, he says, And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of of God. Now I've heard a sermon before that says that Jesus was filled with the fullness of God and that he was God. But because he was God and we are not God, we can't have access to the same things that Jesus did. Now let me just tell you, that is incorrect. On many levels, that's incorrect. But on the level that I'm going to identify here, Paul is telling the church in Colossae, he says, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. And in Ephesians, he says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that amazing? Because what was in Christ can be in us. So that what Christ did, we can also. Did Christ live a sinless life? Absolutely. And could you do that in your flesh? Nope, not a chance. But can you conquer sin? In Christ, through the Spirit of God? Absolutely. Don't think that you can't, because that's not the teaching that comes from the text. That's a teaching that comes from humanistic mindsets that don't believe in the impossible. But as Mark 9, I think it's what, 34 or 23, it says that all things are possible for him who believes. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Guys, you have authority because you no longer are under and in the domain of darkness. You've been transferred to the kingdom of light. You have received access to grace. To power. The same power that Christ had. We have access to. The question is. Are we going to do with it. What he did with it. 
Or we're going to live according to His will and not our own. Because you want that power, you want that grace to train you to live like Christ, then that means you're going to have to be humble like Christ. That's the only way. Humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you. He goes on and he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That You're going to find that terminology in Ephesians 2 as well, of what the blood of the cross has actually purchased for us. It is not us being dunked in water that's going to purchase it for it. It was already purchased by the blood of the Christ, by the blood of the cross. And when we come into Christ, that blood of the cross becomes our atonement. It becomes the propitiation that we need. To have access to all the things that God has given us access to. You can also go read Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. Verse 21, and you, and here's where it comes into play. Who's he talking to? He says you, plurality form of that of the Greek. So he's talking to a group of people. Well, who's he talking to? Verse 2 identifies that. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ and Colossae. One who he says, I'm thankful for you. One who he says, that, like, guys, you are making my job um, a joy. I have so much affection for you because I see Christ manifest in you. And you're growing. This is such a joy to watch. And he says, and you. Who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But check this word out. One of those undertaught words in all of scripture. If. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. And here's here's the, the cool thing in this. This if is not something that is regarding the salvation, the proof that they were actually saved. It's regarding the proof, or I'm sorry, it's regarding the holy and the blameless standing before God in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that every one of us, Paul includes himself, Paul says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul also says in Romans 14.12 that we will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will give an account for things we do in the body, whether good or or evil. Go read Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31. Same exact thing. The author of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And you can go on and read the rest of it because he's talking about people who are sanctified. And then it even says at the end, the Lord will judge his people. His. His people. You're going to give an account for what you do in the body, whether good or evil. Don't think that you don't buy into this heresy that when you came into Christ, all your past, friendship, future sins were all wiped away and you won't give an account for anything. The if you continue in the faith, it's not just in your belief in Jesus, it's in your, your living for him and living like him. If you continue to do that, you will be blameless before him. This is what the text is stating. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. That's up to you what you want to do. But this is what the text is stating. You will give an account. But the possibility for you to live a life of blamelessness is there. I mean, heck, even Paul talked about in Philippians 3 where he says, Under the law, blameless. And he wasn't even in Christ. 
What makes us think that men and women of old could live under a law that for us we look at it as so burdensome and they can say things like they were blameless? Even it talks about Elizabeth and Zechariah. It says they were blameless under the law. That's not saying that they had never sinned once before in their entire lives. But what it means is that in that moment, in that time, as a grown adult, that they were walking blamelessly under the law. How is it that we think that we get filled with the Spirit of God no longer under the law of Moses but under the law of Christ and we have the Almighty living inside of us and somehow we've thought those men and women of old can live blameless under that law without the Spirit but we can't live blameless under the law of Christ with the Spirit? That makes no sense to me. To me, that's undermining the gospel. And this is what Paul is stating. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel of what you heard. First Thessalonians 5, towards the end, I think it's in 23, says that God is able to, to uh, you know what, now I'm forgetting what it says. In 23, it says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He says, I will uphold my end. I have given you access to grace, to power, to every authority that you need to overcome sin. I've given it to you and I will do my part. Will you do yours? That's why he puts a condition. May your whole body, spirit, and soul be kept blameless. You have the authority. Philippians 1, 8-9 talks about it where he says, Approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You have the authority, but you also have the responsibility. And all Paul's stating here is that, yes, you are saved. You have been reconciled. And he says, and you will stand before him holy and blameless. If you continue in what you're supposed to be doing. James 4.17 says, the one who knows the right thing to do for him, the one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. You have authority to not walk in intentional sin. You have the authority to put it down, to kill it. As he talks about in Ephesians 5 um, and even Colossians 3, as we'll get to in a little bit, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You have authority to do it. You don't have to live under sin's thumb. You can live above it. Even as he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, we have the authority to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. You have authority. Exercise it. Use it. Don't let the enemy have his way with you. He goes on, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Essentially, he's living as Christ lived, he's doing as Christ did. He's going to the cross, if you will, proverbially. He's sacrificing of himself for the sake of the church. Christ is no longer here. The only way that Christ is here is through the body of Christ. We are the body. We are his hands. We are his feet. And Christ is now um, reflected in this world through his body, which is why it's so important we reflect him accurately. And Paul simply saying, I'm doing what Christ did for me. I'm doing it for you. Christ went on that cross for me. And I didn't deserve that. And so now I'm going to do it for you. He goes on and he says, of which, um, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
He's not looking to try to just do a chapter a day. He's not looking to just, you know, a church we were a part of. They, they didn't do Bible studies throughout the week. The only time that people got in the Word genuinely together with one another was on a Sunday. And it was, that was um, an overstatement to say that we were actually getting into the Word. He says, part of the whole reason that I exist for the church is to make sure that among the church I make the Word of God fully known. I'm not into this just talking about a one side of the gospel. I'm not into this just talking about, I, I want to know, I want everyone to know fully what the Word of God says. I want them to know truth. This is what Paul toiled and strove for, and struggled for even as he's about to say. He says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Essentially, all Paul is stating is this, that all the wisdom of God is found in Christ. That Jesus is the manifest wisdom of God. He is the truth. Even Jesus said that, on the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the truth. He is wisdom. And this is why he says it's vital for you to know truth. Because the more that you know truth in truth, the more you know Christ. And the less you know of truth, the less you know of Christ. It is impossible to be sanctified and even grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ outside of truth. Impossible. You will not do it. In fact, listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 Peter 1, 22. Because I know that there's somebody who's bound to be saying out there right now, who's saying, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that. I think I can grow in my relationship with Christ outside of the Word of God. I don't have to know what the truth is in order to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because you know what? It's about relationship, not rules. Well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls, having sanctified your souls, your mind, your will, your emotions, having sanctified them, having brought them unto holiness in the sense, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, isn't that interesting? How are we going to purify our souls? How are we going to be sanctified into the image of Jesus Christ? By obedience to the truth. So let me just ask you, if you're not knowing what truth is, how do you know you're obeying it? How do you know that you're actually living in a manner that's worthy and pleasing of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't he just say in Colossians that everything he was praying for is that they would be filled with all the knowledge of his will? You could even interpret that as truth. That they would be filled with the knowledge of truth. In all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Huh. Truth. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to Him. If you're not growing in truth, you're not growing in Christ. And so if you're relegating your um, understanding of the Word to just reading a couple chapters a day. Not really studying it. Not really going deeper, not really focusing on things of the Lord throughout the day, listening to podcasts like this, listening to, to biblical sermons, studying the Word on your own because the Spirit is our instructor. If you're not encapsulated in your life with truth, then you're not going to really grow in Christ. 
And you're not going to remain stagnant either because you're either growing or you're shrinking. There's no middle ground on that one. Listen to what Paul goes on to say as to what he toiled for. He says, Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. Warning everyone. And teaching everyone. With all wisdom. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So let me just break this down for you. I really hope you've stayed with me throughout this entire thing. Because this is vital. He says, look guys. I want you to understand, I want these things fully made known to you. The Word of God to be fully made known to you. And so he talks about it, which is Christ, okay? Christ is the manifestation of the Word of God, right? God had a message for His people. He had a covenant He was coming to bring, and He says, I need a messenger. So He sends Jesus. Jesus comes and He brings the message. And then He then plants this message in the apostles. And as Ephesians 2 says, the church is built on with Christ as its cornerstone on the foundation of the apostles' teaching. And he says, I want this to be made fully known to all the church. And I'm going to warn everyone, which carries a significant consequence attached to this. He's not saying, I'm just going to fluff people up. He says, I'm going to warn them and I'm going to teach them with all wisdom so as to present everyone mature in Christ. That Greek word that's used there is teleos. It means to be perfect, to be brought to an end, to be finished unto the perfect work. He says, the reason I teach the word of God is because I understand that the word of God is the avenue for a person to grow into maturity. Unto the perfection of Jesus Christ. That, this is just again, this is what the text is stating. So if you think that you can grow in Christ without the word of God being something that is vital and important and prioritized in your life. And you are seeking to have it made fully known through the spirit and through men. If you think that you can do that, then you're fighting against God. The only way to grow in Christ is to go deeper in his word. That's the only way. And Paul says, this is what I toiled for. This Greek word that's used there, he says, for this I toil, kopieo, it means to exhaust oneself. Paul says, I am exhausting myself to make the word of God fully known. Man, let me just tell you, there's a lot of churches out there, a lot of pastors out there, who they exhaust themselves for all kinds of stuff. How many are actually out there in the image of Paul, and as the image of Christ was even, who are out there not just trying to do the fluff of ministerial work? Oh, yeah, 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 I'm going to go play a pickup basketball game. I'm going to go on a hunting trip with some buddies. You know, but we'll talk about Jesus. I'm going to go golfing. Who's out there truly exhausting themselves to make the word of God fully known so as to bring people unto maturity? You find a pastor like that, man, you better make sure that you sit under him. You better make sure you stick with him. You find a pastor who's out there trying to make the word of God fully known. Who's not afraid to tackle the hard truths. Who's not afraid. Man, I'm telling you what. I'm praying that God would bring a pastor like that into my life. Because I know that that's a true man of God. All these other, these other, um, I'll just call them infants. They might be in Christ, but they might be infants. 
and they're playing the role of pastor, but they don't have any intent of taking people deeper in the word of God. That's not their focus. They're just trying to put butts in seats. Man, I, I don't sit under that because that's not, a, that's not a church that Jesus is building. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. Notice whose energy it is that Paul's struggling with. He's exhausting himself, and yet there's something supernatural. Remember what we talked about earlier? About this word that he was talking about. um, This miraculous power, this dunamis. There was something at work in Paul that he didn't have in in of himself. He was exhausting himself, and yet there was this miraculous supernatural power that was pushing him further. Taking him to a place that he didn't think he could go in his own strength. And yet he continually had what he needed to do the work of God. That's grace. And because Paul was faithful and he was obedient and he was humbly doing what he needed to do. And he had the right perspective and he was trying to lead people into truth. God says, I'm going to honor that and I'm going to give you my grace. And I'm going to honor you and I'm going to give you what you need. The supernatural power to do what I'm asking you to do in truth. Church, listener, are you understanding the grace of God in truth? Do you know that there is a supply of energy that heaven wants to put in you, but it's only going to come in you when you understand it and when you exhaust yourself of your resources so that you can be filled with his? He must increase, but I must decrease. You want to follow him, it's going to cost you your life. But the beauty is... Is that he then fills his life in you to do what he wants you to do. And so, if you're a pastor listening to this, make sure your commission is to go out there and to love your church enough so as to lead them in truth and make the word of God fully known. There's so many things that we just covered just in Colossians 1. um, And I, I could have taken a much longer time to go through a lot of this stuff. But the reality is... Is I don't have enough time on a podcast channel um, to be able to do this, and so uh, we're going to pick up chapter two, um, you know, soon. Uh, hope, you know, I got to go to work and do that tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday, and then we've got Bible study Tuesday night, and we've got a Bible study Thursday night, Wednesday night. The kids go off to youth, so you know, we'll see what when I'm going to be able to hit chapter two. But the reality is, um, chapter one was a great beginning. And I'm, I'm thankful and hopeful that the rest of this book is going to be enlightening for you, edifying to you, challenging to you, convicting. I hope it steps on some toes, that your steel-toed boots get smushed on that front if it means that it's going to cause you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and the word of truth. And so, you'll be blessed as you guys seek to honor him, live in truth, and make that truth fully known to others. You'll be blessed.